0: from Austin and welcome to episode 60 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney.
1: I'm Steve Vladek. It, it's been eight
0: days. Bobby, has anything happened? No, any? I feel like we should just do frivolity. We don't Spring really have training. Will Tim, talking, will Tim Tebow be well, on the Mets day roster? We, we could talk about Black Panther, but you haven't seen it yet,
1: um, which is letting me down. Yeah. I got nothing other than my 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 sister and my brother in law and my t- my niece and nephew were here. All right, and and they I'll went let it slide this so, time.
0: I guess we'll talk national security law instead. Has it? What is there to
1: say? It's been a quiet <sighs> day, right? Let check. Let, let me let me, me Google that for you. Yeah. by the way, Holy have you ever cow. have you actually ever used that website? Let me Google that for you. <laughs>
0: no, I know about it. It's pretty great.
1: I, I actually did that once to to someone I was on a committee with. So someone I was He's on a committee like... with asked a question of like on this list that like had 30 people on it that like the top line Google result would have answered his question. And so I sent him the let me Google that for you link, right? And if you guys don't know at home, right, let me Google that for you. Um, The link will send the person who clicks on it to Google, type in the query, and highlight (laughs) the top answer.
0: Did uh, this person get it? were they they, they like, oh, cool, thanks?
1: they, They responded just thanks. Yeah. Which makes me think they didn't get it. <laughs> the capital of
0: Texas is Austin. Oh, thank you. Good to know. Good to know. All right. Well, so what are we going to talk about today in a more serious vein? <laughs> we have a lot. We do have a lot. So we're going to start with the Supreme Court roundup. Uh,
1: uh, three developments there. One, a ruling this morning in a Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act case that we had
0: actually talked about previously. And then a uh, decision not to take review in a sort of a standing for data breach case, care first, and then... uh... And then uh,
1: no decision yet on DACA, which I think is actually quite interesting unto itself insofar as what it portends about whether the court is going to take up that case this term or perhaps even ever.
0: Let's see. What else can we talk about? Oh, I don't know. Military (laughs) commission. Nothing's happened there. Well, actually, at the moment... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that, that's, in fact, I think the common theme of our military commission's uh, topics today, and there are many of them, is Ain't Nothing Happening.
1: Ain't Nothing Happening. That could be the,
0: that'd be a good episode title, Ain't Nothing Happening. I
1: was going to say self-inflicted wounds, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so on, the, on the sort of quick and dirty list of military commission stuff, so I had to fix something I got wrong last week. Darby Day came and went. Right, uh, Ahmed al Darby. The the day on which he was supposed to be returned to Saudi Arabia under the terms of his plea agreement was yesterday. Yeah.
0: And we have lots of material to plow through to understand the propriety of the decision, the implicit decision right. not to get that done on time. Um,
1: so al Darby is still at Guantanamo. Judge Spath is not. Um, so so Friday, Judge Spath rather unceremoniously, um, all, almost literally dropped the mic yeah, and walked off the bench. Yeah, total uh, mic drop. mic
0: drop. Do you think he just like went straight you know, to the boat, crossed over, got on a plane, and got out of there?
1: I don't think that's how transportation works from Guantanamo, you but if you could have. your out and catch a ride? Also, I thought they don't have the separate boat anymore.
0: I don't know. It's been a long time since um,
1: the, we we'll, we'll talk about why what's going on with the Nishiri case is both really interesting and also why it hasn't at least yet infected the other now three pending cases in the military commissions, and so why this is big news but perhaps not categorically structural news for the military commissions um, and then we also want to sort of once again beat the dead horse about why this you know would not be happening if we were in civilian
0: court yeah we'll, we'll, uh, we'll use it as an occasion to give a quick rundown um, since these days uh, DOJ prosecutorial successes in the courtroom in terrorism cases often doesn't even make you know the the first or second or third page of the newspaper. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll run down some recent events just for a compare and contrast.
1: And then how that applies to, for example, the two so-called Beatles who we talked about last week, yep, right? We'll the reinforce that point. Formerly British ISIS fighters captured in Syria. Um, we'll pivot from there to related but distinct sort of substantive detention questions. There have been a bunch of interesting filings in both. The Doe versus Mattis case, that's the U.S. citizen being held as an enemy combatant in Iraq. And in the um, CCR Group of 11 habeas petition challenging the detention of 11 of the remaining 41 Guantanamo detainees. The government filed their merits response. Um, because I think we're going to be pressed for time, Bobby, maybe we'll save the, a deep dive into those filings yeah, for another week. But I we'll agree. at least briefly summarize them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, something else happened on Friday.
0: Who's that uh, That Mueller guy?
1: Is it Mueller or Mueller? I'm just kidding. I know it's Mueller. <laughs> but but here in Austin, we have Mueller. a neighborhood, and I never quite know. How. Is the neighborhood Mueller or is the neighborhood Mueller? Mueller. The neighborhood because is Mueller. the airport was Mueller. The airport was Mueller. See, Austin pronounces things weirdly. You mean like Manchac? Manchac, Guadalupe.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, it's not just Austin, my friend. Uh, although you, although you think I think I'm going to say something about like, uh, I don't know. Some other street. I'm actually thinking about New York and Houston.
1: No, no, but excuse me, sir. <laughs> you know as well as I do <laughs> that yeah. Houston Street is not named after Sam Houston. That's the problem. Right, that Houston Street is derived from the Dutch, in which H-U-I-S is pronounced I house. I know,
0: I know, but it's still... Okay, so uh, we will talk about the Russia indictments. <laughs> uh, and speaking of the Dutch, you know, there, there's been... Some Ooh, speaking pretty pretty of good, the huh? Dutch. Alex van der... Zwan. Zwan. Um, yeah, so we'll talk about some of these. Uh, <laughs> now, I'm, I'm kind of proud of that Okay, that's, that's the good. episode title. Speaking, speaking of,
1: the of the Dutch. Dutch. <laughs> Come on. That's brilliant.
0: <laughs> okay. And then we'll close out. I'll give a quick rundown on this uh, new Justice Department announcement of the Cyber Task Force. Ooh. now they, I'll talk about real quickly what is that going to be doing. Um, and, now let's and, and, and why didn't Obama
1: do it? <laughs> and why, I mean, <laughs> you know, if all this has been going on for years, why didn't Obama do it? Where, but, was, but where be, was
0: Gerald Ford on this? Hmm?
1: Why, mm-hmm. wh- why, why didn't Obama do it? Uh, why, why didn't FDR <laughs> end World War II? Can you, seriously, can you imagine Harry Truman like a couple weeks in the office, you know, going on TV and saying, "Don't blame me, right? I didn't, I didn't, you know." FDR is the one who didn't end World War II.
0: You know, I think I think is as, as fun as it is to be exasperated by by the, these things Trump tweets. I think we're I, playing, I, it's not fun. I, I think it's uh, as tempting as it is. It's hard. I think it's playing into his hands uh, when he says. Why didn't Obama take care of the Russian meddling? It all happened while he was still president, I think the more we sort of say like, well let me explain why. I, I almost think we're they're kind of so the going answer along is just with. to not explain. No, the answer is to not honor the the ridiculous suggestion. But well, we can explain it. We can get to that. Um, uh, all right, we'll come back to that under the cyber topic. That'll yes. make it much more interesting than I thought it was going to be. And, and then we'll
1: have so We we actually won't have any time for frivolity. We'll just be frivolous through the regular. I have mechanism. I have complete
0: trust that we will periodically interrupt ourselves with uh, references to things like I guess Disney's planning a. Uh, they're gonna they're gonna reboot the Muppets and have a Ooh. new series. I think on, through Netflix or something.
1: And I really want to talk about the American masquerading as a Hungarian skier just oh, so that you could go to the Olympics. Super
0: agreed. I think that's really wrong. I'm, I was very <laughs> not happy about this because you, it should at least be the case that there's a certain credibility uh, – uh, a certain achievement symbolized by being able to authentically say you were in the Olympics. Did you
1: watch the video of her run?
0: No, I didn't have the stomach. I mean, she would just cruises down the pipe, right? Uh-huh. A little bit up each side. yep, Now,
1: mind you, I've never skied in my life, but I have to think that give me a couple weeks and I could do that.
0: Well, there's there's a fair so there's a there's a story going around about the number of athletes who are in this sort of novelty carrot category. And it's tough because people love the Eddie the Eagles story, and, and if you and, and the guy of- from Tonga. Some things like that, yeah, uh, but there ought to be some sort of minimum threshold for actually being able to compete at a world-class level if you're really purporting to be a world-class event. But what,
1: one last thing about the Olympics before we turn to seriousness, apparently it has resparked and resurged interest in the band OAR because of the uh, Olympic <laughs> athletes from Russia. Wait,
0: what, what band is that? I'm not, to OAR. Um,
1: is that like uh, Turn the Car Around? Is that OAR?
0: I don't know. At first I was thinking OMD, Orchestral <laughs> <in the> <laughs> Well, now we're <laughs> dating ourselves. That's right, OAR. All right. All um, right. So Supreme Court, uh, first thing we had a number of opinions dropped this morning. Four.
1: We're doubling the total for the year.
0: I know there there's gonna be, I think, a lot of uh, Supreme Court recapping to be done in the months ahead. But today, Yes, you- by the
1: way, I was right, shattered, turn the car around.
0: Oh really? I, I have no How idea. Many times did I say without- okay. I just- oh, I love it. We got you singing. Yeah, yeah. This will be the new feature. All right, back of the to the show. Supreme Court. The Rubin decision. Yes. What was it? What did the Supreme Court decide?
1: Ruben versus Islamic Republic of Iran. Actually, they're not really the defendants. Um They're the nominal defendants.
0: University of Chicago, right? That's the real
1: defendant. All right, so here's a case about the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Um, And the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act is basically the mechanism through which private litigants can sue foreign sovereigns. And one of the things that's been an especially um, rich ground for suits in recent years has been suits against so-called state sponsors of terrorism. Right. Which is why? Um, why? Because Congress in 2008 amended the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act um, to create a new exception to the otherwise existing foreign sovereign immunity for those states who were designated by the State Department to be state sponsors of terrorism for Um, the terrorist activities that result in injuries to U.S. persons and or U.S. interests.
0: So the baseline rule, surprise, surprise, most states agree that all states should presumptively be immune from litigation in each other's courts, and that way people don't haul other governments into courts, but... You gotta, Among ha- the exceptions. you gotta have exceptions, and, and, and so Congress
1: in 1976 passed the FSIA, not to be confused with FISA, right. um, to to delineate the exceptions. In 2008, Congress added an exception for state sponsors of terrorism. So that's how we've seen basically a decade's worth of litigation against Iran. The judgments
0: keep piling up.
1: The judgments are piling up. The problem is is that, as I suspect our listeners will not be surprised to learn, virtually all of Iran's assets within the United States have been frozen and or seized by the U.S. government. Um, And so what that means is that they cannot be attached upon or used to satisfy a judgment against Iran. To our our
0: non-lawyer friends, attachment is the the fancy legal term for the scenario in which, you know, you win your case, John Doe next, I shouldn't say John Doe, right? We're using that elsewhere. John Uh, Corporation. Jimmy next door is the guy (laughs) you sued. He owes you a hundred bucks. And to collect, the sheriff attaches, which is to say seizes some valuable thing of his and eventually can be auctioned off and then the proceeds will pay off the judgment.
1: Exactly right. And so in this case, a bunch of plaintiffs said, well, shoot, if we can't get to Iran, money in their bank accounts in the U.S., there are all these cultural antiquities that the government of Iran has loaned to U.S. museums and educational institutions. Such as? The University of Chicago.
0: Wait, wait, now am I remembering correctly one Indiana Jones... There's, this is the Indiana Jones case. This Indiana Jones may have gone on some Badass adventure. captured some ancient Persian tablets (laughs) or
1: something. We had a whole discussion when we talked about this on the podcast last time about Indiana Jones and about true lies, right? The Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, Tom Arnold, Jamie right. You
0: don't love true lies the way that I do. Um, I think true lies is a
1: fantastically terrible movie.
0: As long as you put Fantastic in front of them <laughs> with you. Uh,
1: Eminently watchable.
0: Whereas, ironically, certain of the Indiana Jones sequels are terrible oh, and, not fa- and not fantastic crystal, at all. Crystal
1: Skull jumped the shark. Exactly right. so. So So. anyway, and by the way, we are now just repeating the conversation we had last time we talked about this exact case. That, I,
0: Few listeners will know or care. <laughs> All right,
1: so so what the um what what basically happened is they try the plaintiffs tried to use this property, um and they said that they could attach it. They could basically uh, order the court to seize it, to sell it, and then to give them the assets of the sale. Um, the Supreme Court ruled this morning eight nothing. Justice Kagan was recused, presumably because she was involved in some way when this case was. Um, You know, it's kicking up as when she was still Solicitor General. I like to
0: imagine she recused because sometimes she goes on these archaeological adventures (laughs) and she's the
1: one that originally sees these tablets. in 1930-whatever.
0: You know, through the magic. The Supreme Court, you never know.
1: (laughs) Speaking of Indiana Jones jumping the shark, we now have Uh, Justice Kagan, comma, time traveler. Or Highlander. Eh, There you go. Okay. Um, (laughs) Anyway...
0: <laughs> this is going to be quite a,
1: quite a show. So this Supreme court ruled 8-0 um, that in fact that's, the FSIA is not sufficiently clear on this point. Um, that the, that, so let me back up a second. Of most importance to everyone here is the FSIA creates two different types of waivers. Uh, Two different types of exceptions to immunity. The first is an exception that allows the foreign sovereign to be brought into court in the first place. So
0: threshold, can you even sue that government? We
1: might call that litigation immunity. Got it. Right. Um, And everyone agrees that in this case, the FSIA waived Iran's litigation immunity through the 2008 amendment.
0: And So the plaintiffs think, hey, therefore anything goes. Right. but
1: But the FSIA creates separate and not necessarily overlapping waivers of what you might call judgment or attachment immunity which is the power of the court, once it has ruled against the foreign sovereign, to then go and take its property. And those exceptions are not one-to-one. They have never been. And what the Supreme Court ruled this morning is the existing exceptions to attachment immunity don't encompass this kind of property claim.
0: So the idea is, the threshold or litigation immunity has been waived, but that doesn't mean that anything belonging to the government of Iran potentially, and I'm sure there's a dispute about, like, do, does Iran even own these things right. versus Chicago? Right. Uh, that doesn't follow automatically as attachable. You have to do a separate analysis under the statute of its yep. very specific categories of course, as we looked, don't see bronze, don't see tablets on there,
1: right? Or, or the point: this looks like the kind of property that's specifically not exempted from attachment immunity under sixteen ten, mm-hmm. right? Now, the reason why this matters beyond the Indiana Jones hypothetical is we have talked before about the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, or JASTA, mm-hmm. um, which, among other things, was designed to make it easier to sue Saudi Arabia, not a state sponsor of terrorism, for its alleged role in at least indirectly funding aspects of the 9-11 attacks. Um, But one of the things that Josta sneakily does is it waives any foreign sovereign although really it's Saudi Arabia's Mm -hmm. litigation immunity, but Bobby it does not waive attachment and judgment immunity. And so even if you could have a successful so-called Josta claim, what today's decision reinforces is that it's going to be impossible
0: for plaintiffs in such a case to collect a a penny. Which means that by Enacting Jasta we reap all the foreign affairs frictions and cost and don't actually do anything for those who would sue
1: other than give them an illusory day in court right they, and maybe, they
0: think that now i can sue and in fact they're not going to be able to recover right i mean may, now but they may, a judgment that's not nothing well, so listen so so
1: i mean listen if, if if the if the victims if the families of nine eleven victims you know would be sufficiently satisfied by a piece of paper that says we've concluded that saudi arabia was indirectly liable for financing some aspects of 9-11 congratulations here's your zero money Right. That's on them. Yeah. My point is just that the bill of goods that was sold to Congress by Congress when they enacted it and when they overrode President Obama's veto presupposed that this was actually going to be an effective right. litigation vehicle. And as Jack Goldsmith and I wrote, the one thing Jack and I have ever co-authored um, in the CNN op-ed, um, it really was the worst of both worlds. You got all of the harm and om- almost certainly yeah. none of the real value and almost none of the of the you know putative value.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, that's interesting. So, Ribbon really underscores, you guys were right about that. Indeed. Um, which is good. Hey. Let's hope you keep getting shown to be right by the Supreme Court. By the Supreme Court, Court. yeah. I, I can think of no, a couple I'm other I'm cases. I'm or Patrick. <laughs> Patrick. I mean, you know, the, the,
1: there, there are other cases in which I've, you know, I Go filed, filed another, m- I filed a mucous brief yesterday in a case about the collateral order, doctrine, and antitrust immunity. So you,
0: you should keep doing this because it's like going into the roulette table and being like, I'll put a little bit here on seven red. I'm going to win eventually, uh, right? Yeah, well, you, you, you might. <laughs> I <laughs> you, might. You might have to have a stake on both sides of all these cases.
1: All right, so uh, uh, the Supreme Court yesterday right bobby denied certain a bunch of cases as well one of which you know you've been tracking let me
0: talk about care first real quick care first this is this is a uh, a dc uh, starts in the dc district court where uh, petitioners are complaining uh, seeking class action recovery for a big healthcare data breach event uh, and so they're suing care first and the dc district court dismisses it for lack of standing saying that the the asserted harm the prospective Possibility of identity theft was too speculative, and therefore it's not an actual or imminent injury for Article Three standing purposes. Um, interestingly, the D.C. Circuit had uh, reversed that, saying that look, if you if you take the allegations as true, and that's a critical part of this, this is you know still that twelve B six type stage. Um, if you take them as true, then given the peculiar and particular nature of this particular data set then it's it certainly would be a real harm if and when identity theft materialized. And it's sufficiently clear that something could happen and would be traceable, at least in part, back to this event, and that's good enough. And a lot of people said, you know what, there seems to be a division amongst the circuits about what the standard for assessing standing based on speculation that you might have your identity stolen in a data breach case might be. Um, and then there were others who said, you know, actually, it's not really that. It's just that the fact patterns are different. Right, the fact patterns are different. I, I fall into the latter camp. And apparently, we don't know. It's her denial. You're not supposed to construe anything from that. But, but it does look a lot like – because if you thought the the former – then you had a pretty big and looming circuit split on a pretty important issue and you think the court would intervene. So it, it does seem like the court is not necessarily saying that, yes, they're definitely all applying the same standard to different fact patterns, but at least, would you agree, at least that it's not obvious they aren't.
1: It's not as they are, and, and I would just say this is all result of the fallout of the Supreme Court's 2016 decision in a case called Spokeo Inc. versus Robbins. Actually, Bobby, just today there were new Sixth and Ninth Circuit decisions also about Spokeo. Um, and you might have
0: had that upside down. It might have been Ninth and Sixth.
1: I, uh, <laughs> Maddie and, and her cousins and I were playing Uno over the weekend, and <laughs> this is exactly the kind of mindset where I get it with my kids, um, right? Because the six has a line uh, underneath exactly. and the nine doesn't. Um, so in Spokeo, the court actually avoided what I think a lot of folks were expecting was going to be a much broader ruling about Article Three standing, and instead ruled very narrowly um, that a pure statutory injury. Right um, by itself might not be sufficient to satisfy Article Three. Just because Congress said you can sue when X thing happens, that doesn't automatically mean that that creates Article Three standing. So the question is in the context of data privacy, as in a, a breach, or in the context of like data reporting, right? Which is what happens in a lot of these fair credit cases. Mm-hmm. Um, at what point are you actually injured beyond just, say, having your zip code printed incorrectly or having too much information revealed, right? And that's what these cases have been struggling with. I agree with you. I think it is a very fact-intensive case-by-case inquiry. I'm not surprised at all that the Supreme Court denied cert in the CARE-first in, in the, in the, the, the care case. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's going to be, you know, unless and until there's a real, like, circuit split on similar facts, Right? or some circuit goes off the rails on exactly what Spokeo means about the Article 3 analysis, the, court, the Supreme Court's going to leave this alone.
0: Yeah, this is, so watch this space. It's definitely not done.
1: Um, but also of interest, um, neither Friday nor yesterday did we get any word from the Supreme Court about DACA, um, where the United States government has pending a petition for certiorari before judgment, a rare exceptional ask to jump over the Ninth Circuit to review Judge Alsup's January ruling, basically enjoining um, the government's uh, rescission of DACA. Um, since I think we last recorded, there have been two additional district court rulings, or there was one while we were recording, yeah, exactly. and then there was one after. So there are now three different district uh, and court they're rulings. All national they're all nationwide injunctions. Yeah. I know that that's a topic for another time. Um, I am surprised that we heard neither Friday nor yesterday, right? So Friday would have been if they were going to grant. Yesterday would would have been if they were going to straight deny.
0: Right. So read the tea leaves. So, this indicates somebody's dissenting, dissenting. from the denial.
1: Yep. So so my, my suspicion is that next week or the week thereafter, we will get a denial of cert before judgment accompanied by some number of opinions dissenting from and concurring in yeah. that. Um, now, to be clear, guys, cert before judgment is unusual. The Supreme Court hasn't yeah. granted it at all since 2009. Four and it hasn't granted it on a case where there was no circuit level opinion since 1988. Yeah. So, so even a surprising. justice, right? Yeah. Even a justice sympathetic to the government's position could have easily concluded, "I will wait for the Ninth Circuit to rule." Yep. Yeah. Um, so we shouldn't read too much into it. Other than that, a grant would have been an ominous sign for the challengers of the rescission. <laughs> right. Right. Well, that
0: boy. Yes. Exactly. So. All right. Um, all right. So that's.
1: I think that covers our Supreme Court it does. news for the
0: week. Let's take that
1: bucket and throw
0: it over there. All right. Down all to right.
1: Guantanamo. Yeah,
0: what I'm talking about. Something's afoot, but you, you mentioned there was something you yeah I screwed up something. Time. So
1: um, with a big shout out to Rita Radistitz, um, one of our 17 listeners. Yeah. Um, so Rita pointed out that I actually had dra- dramatically understated the role of the convening authority in plea negotiations, and that in fact, um, as borrowed from the court martial system, it is the convening authority not the prosecutor that does most of the heavy lifting when it comes to plea negotiations. Yeah,
0: that's pretty interesting. So we were talking about this because of the firing of Harvey Rishkoff, who had been the convening authority.
1: And Charlie Savage had a story suggesting that one of the subjects on which Harvey had fallen out with senior DOD leadership was a potential that some of the 9-11 defendants might enter guilty pleas in exchange for having the death penalty taken off the table.
0: And so it looks like we we were speculating, was he out of his lane doing something that he shouldn't have been? Uh, Clearly not. In fact, the The problem seems to be rather, at least one of the problems seems to be rather that he was quite in his lane and using his authority in the plea bargain space. Uh, I guess the inference, if would that be, is, if it, that is what yeah, it was about, yeah, if it was, then it's uh, it would signal that people don't want the death penalty taken off the table in those cases. Don't just secure a plea. Let's drive to trial and get those, those right. Uh, and so, and, and, my, and my
1: sense, just from sort of you know. Keeping my ear to the ground is that Charlie was actually onto something in mm-hmm. his piece that that the 9/11 piece was not nothing in the termination yeah. of Harvey and, and Gary Brown.
0: But it could well be other things as well.
1: Well, so so including right another case where the plea agreement was increasingly looming large. <laughs> yes. Um, so enter Ahmed Al Darby. Darby Day. Was supposed to be yesterday. Yeah. So last, went.
0: last week we had our predictions and I said, Oh, they're they're certainly gonna do it.
1: And you didn't believe me, by the way, that the that the English pronounced you know Derby Darby. Oh no,
0: but many of our listeners corrected us on that it's not so much I didn't believe you, but that I <laughs> enjoy you know testing you in that way. Yeah, 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 Um so Derby Day came and went. The twentieth came and went. Here here's the deal. Uh Darby pled guilty in twenty fourteen.
1: On February twentieth, twenty fourteen. Exactly
0: so. And that date, that's what set the date. Yep. Uh, he promised to testify against others and he delivered. He has testified against others. Um, he has a 13-year sentence, which f- comes on top of the about 15 years or so, I guess he's already uh, been in, right, been in custody. So uh, the understanding in the plea agreement, though, was that the United States would request Saudi Arabia to take him back and that he would serve his sentence after the four-year mark, he, he would, by then, be shipped off to Saudi Arabia. So we were all watching. It didn't happen. Here's exactly the—here's a quote from the DoD formal statement, uh, the relevant part. Uh, Al-Darby's plea agreement stipulated his transfer would occur after serving four years in U.S. custody. Today marks four years since he signed the agreement. We await assurances from the Saudi Arabian government to move forward on his departure, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, So many questions arise. Yes, many questions. Possibility one, maybe some of the transfer restrictions, and we're going to answer these, by the way. (laughs) Possibility one, maybe some of the transfer restrictions in the the, uh, periodic NDAAs uh, require, as we know is the case for general decisions to transfer and release, maybe they require the def to sign off in writing that they've received adequate assurances by the receiving state that they'll- Short answer. No. No. And we'll explain that in a minute. Uh, possibility two. Well, maybe when you parse the plea agreement, it reserves the possibility that such assurances still need to be sought yeah. and DOD might decide, hey, we're, we're just not there yet.
1: Short answer. No. <laughs> um,
0: and then we'll, we'll talk about other possibilities. Let's explain those two. Yes. Uh, the relevant provision. Uh, uh, so I'll do the NDA and yeah, yeah, the plea please. agreement. All
1: right. So so with regard to the NDA, the last time Congress spoke to the subject directly was in the fiscal year 2016. National Defense Authorization Act which was enacted in November of 20 20- 15 um, in section 1034, which deals with the certifications required prior to transfer. And what it says is that there is no certification required to transfer any individual detained at Guantanamo to effectuate an order affecting the disposition of the individual that is issued by a court or competent tribunal of the United States having lawful jurisdiction. Um, I don't think it's much debatable that a plea agreement signed off on by the military commission itself and by the government, qualifies as an order affecting the disposition of the individual that's issued by a court or competent tribunal of the United States having lawful jurisdiction. Absolutely.
0: Therefore it follows that there's no statutory compulsion for DOD to hold back from compliance with the plea agreement pending getting the right degree right. of right. certification. That,
1: that 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 DOD could put Al Darby on a plane without filing anything and would not violate the transfer exactly. restrictions in the FY twenty sixteen NDAA.
0: Now that means that the decision to nonetheless let the date come and go in violation of the plea agreement Uh, because you haven't yet been satisfied by what Saudi Arabia is saying, uh, is a policy choice not to comply with the plea agreement. Unless, of course, the plea agreement uh, anticipates this possibility. And and
1: in which case al-Darbi would have consented, right, to this kind of consideration. He couldn't complain
0: So let's look closely. The relevant paragraphs in the plea agreement are in paragraph uh, 29 and paragraph 30. Uh, I'm going to read the key parts of 29 especially uh, and this is, it's written in the form of, of Al darbi himself in his voice because he's the one that signs this. As a condition precedent to my entry of a plea at my arraignment, skipping ahead, um, I'll be given a copy of the diplomatic notes exchanged between the United States and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, skip ahead. I understand that my transfer to Saudi Arabia is contingent upon the consent of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. This plea agreement does not and cannot bind the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia to consent to my prisoner transfer request. Um, and it goes on and on. I, I'm going to skip over most of it. But it's of the same spirit. It, it goes out of its way to, I think, in three different parts in those two paragraphs to have him acknowledge that the Saudis can decide to deny his request. They can deny it. It's their discretion. It's their decision. It's ultimately made by the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Here's what this doesn't say. It doesn't say that DOD, faced with Saudi willingness to take him, can say, well, hold on. We want some further conditions that it, it's a one-way deal. Yes. It seems to empower the Saudis to say no. But, but not DOD. It, indeed. If, if, I think any fair reading of it suggests that DOD is is promising to use its good offices to try to effectuate the transfer.
1: And indeed, I mean, what's, what's remarkable about that is, right, there's nothing in the DOD statement from yesterday suggesting that the holdup here is the Saudis saying no.
0: Right. That's right. Right. So I can well imagine a different DOD statement in which they say, we have not yet been given assurances that they'll actually hold him for his sentence, which I think could be implied into this. Maybe.
1: Right? So So it's worth stressing that there are two potential sets of assurances at play here. We've only been talking about one so far, which is the sort of governmental security assurances, right, That right. that the Saudi government is going to make the requisite assurances – to the US government that it's going to monitor al Darbi, that's going to comply with whatever the traffic controls are. Bobby, the, there's one other possibility, which is there's also the other direction set of assurances, which is the Saudi government making assurances that al Darbi will not come to harm in violation of the torture convention, right? Um, those aren't, I mean, so that's the only other ground I could see here is the US government saying, for humanitarian reasons. Yeah. and right? there,
0: There's no hint of this. There's no
1: hint of that, right? Because it would be a violation, as we've discussed before, mm-hmm. it would be a violation of the Foreign Affairs Reform and Restructuring Act of 1998 to transfer al-Darbi if he credibly feared torture in Saudi Arabia.
0: Right, I, have, I have no doubt that the original exchange of diplomatic <laughs> notes included the relevant and recurring almost boilerplate Right, clauses, we won't torture. Uh, etc. right. And uh, so I'm not too worried about that being the issue here. All right, so. I, so then, the, okay, so. So they've flubbed it. They have crossed the Darby line, yes. and they, they're in violation of the plea agreement. Yes. Two questions follow. There's a procedural question. If you represented Darby, what's your procedural solution to this? Secondly, and this may af- affect what procedural uh, solution to seek, yes. what do you think is really going on here? Because this could be a malfeasance story. Or misfeasant. could be a mis-feasance story.
1: I don't know the answer to the second, and I don't have any good speculation on the second. Um, you know, is that part of what got Harvey fired, right? That would be an interesting data point. Um, on the first, I mean, it is not uncommon for defendants to file basically some kind of motion for extraordinary relief to compel specific performance with a plea agreement. Um, and that's basically what Al Darby would be seeking would here. Would it be a
0: mandamus right? I
1: think it would have to be, right? Because the military commission is not a stand in court, right? The, the court in which Al Darby pled guilty— no longer technically exists. So I think Al Darby would have to go to the CMCR and either as a direct mandamus petition or, you know, claiming it's an appeal of a final judgment, right? Insofar as it's an appeal from the plea, yeah. um, Move for extraordinary relief to compel the government to comply with the plea agreement. Um, interesting that we're going to talk about mandamus and the CMCR. Yeah, uh,
0: absolutely, but, we are.
1: But yeah. I will say this, I mean, you know, if and when we get to that point, the government does not have a case. Right, I mean, the, we just talked about why the NDAA does not
0: oh, right. block no, no. El like Darby's they, they, transfer. This seems like actually a pretty good Man Davis scenario. They, they promised to do this. You don't really get to... Unless, unless they're claiming, which they're not, that Al Darby breached the agreement. Right. In fact, it seems like they've conceded. And I think there actually was a DOD statement that right. he has done his part. He's done his, his part.
1: part, yeah. And so, the quest, and so at that point, the question because, so So if I'm the judge, I mean, you know, the government would never want me as a judge in any of these cases. If I'm the judge, the first question I ask is, hey, it's been four years. Right. What have you been doing this whole time? Right. Like what is actually going on?
0: Oh, well, OK. But what's interesting about that is what if <laughs> I think this would be baloney, but what if they said, like, well, you know, the, the Obama folks didn't didn't tend to this. So we showed up and we're shorthanded and we're getting to it, but we're having to clean up the mess. Um, if that were the actual state of affairs, which I do not think it is, um, but if this is just as laying about untended, the court can say, OK, I hereby order you to get after it. And they would say, we are getting after it. We're, we're moving with all deliberate speed to get after it. Um, so this raises another possibility, and I, I suggested this to you the other day on, online on Twitter, that, you know, maybe the whole thing here is that, look, they are shorthanded. This was a low priority. The White House in particular, everyone is loath to have it come across the president's desk that he is about to reduce the number of Guantanamo detainees under his watch. That, of course, is contrary to all the, the narratives he wants to associate himself with. And so the idea that you might, ha- you might end up the court order clearly making them do it. Oh, I can totally see someone saying that, you know what? That's fine. Let's do it that way. Let's, let's do it. We can't get this done. If we can't get it done on time, fine. If they sue us, all the better. Because then we have political cover and the president can say, hey, I didn't want to do this, but yet another, you know, this and that judge is making me do something dumb. Do, so, you think, do you think that's what's going on? Do you think this is all designed to force litigation? I don't think it's designed to force it. I think that some of the people involved in this are more than smart enough to see that it could get to that point point that they'll lose. And have probably figured that, you know, worst case scenario, that provides them with top cover, important political top cover they may need to get this train out of the station. Uh, not, so the idea is it's not that they're sitting there in, a, in sort of a very cynical way saying, oh, this is perfect. Let's, let's make the judges do it. It's more like probably people of goodwill who are having trouble because of shorthandedness and, and lack of political support all the way at the top, uh, thinking, well, you know, if that's how this goes, there are worse ways to get our job done, right? So I, I think it will get done sooner or later, but it is going to be a, a little while here maybe it'll turn out that there's something else coming up that works. Just
1: what we needed in the military commissions, right? More delay of even the, the, the easiest freaking thing in the military commissions, a plea agreement. And even
0: this isn't getting executed. It is it is yet another body blow to the commissions. Speaking of which, let's talk about the Judge Spath mic drop. Oh, gosh. Okay. So uh, some context here. As we as we described it in our little pregame uh, planning session, all, all 30 seconds of it, at this point, the Nishiri... Uh, imbroglio, or whatever the proper pronunciation of that word is, uh, has at least three, maybe four layers of, of nested concerns going on. Initial concern, this whole thing starts with a collateral question about whether CIA or somebody else, governmental, is listening in on attorney-client conversations. So there's a, there's a core factual dispute. Many people clearly very convinced that happened, but not everyone, certainly the government's not acknowledging it. So there's a fact dispute about whether that is taking place. Layered on top of that, uh, the conclusion that this, if true, and, and the defense team believed it to be true, did this create a situation of legal ethics that obliged the defense team to withdraw from representing the Shiri in less than until this could be fixed, or perhaps permanently? Um then that led to the question when they decided indeed it does, and therefore they, most of them withdrew, including the learned counsel that's so critical in a capital case. This led to the third question, which is, who gets to approve that? Is it enough that the head, that Brigadier General Baker heading the defense team, uh, the Office of the Defense, approved it? Or did Judge Spath, as the presiding trial judge, did he get to approve it? They disagreed on this. That set off its own collateral issues. Now, on top of that, you layer in, so Judge Spath says, I get to decide this and starts in, in, in imposing various sanctions. This helps get, you know, maybe gets Harvey in trouble as convenient authority. There's a further issue of, you know, what's the posture to resolve the issue from there? Judge Spath is all fed up because he's trying to just proceed right. with what, you know, what little legal involvement by the defense there is. Uh, we made... A bit of fun last week of his suggestion that the one lingering uh, non-capital we'll lawyer, yep. yeah, he should maybe take a CLE course on this stuff. Right. But, uh, but, he, but in a way, I mean, he was stuck. He was stuck, and so I think in, it's sort of understandable. He says, "All right, fine, forget it. Everything's in abeyance until this gets resolved. I'm out of here. Mic drop. Courtroom." You know, silent as right. the We're judge done. leaves. We're done. We're out. We're done. Yeah. And, and and so now on top of that, as of today. And, and,
1: and abatement until until he said a superior court tells me what to do.
0: Right. Which is a funny thing because, you know, he can't. Well, I suppose he could have tried to certify an issue. There's no authority for like him that. to do so. Yeah. So, okay. So he can't certify an issue, which kind of shines the light back at well, possibility one is nothing happens except whatever could or should happen by way of challenging you know, his earlier efforts to force some of the, the defense team back in. I mean, basically what happened here is he was trying to force some of those defense lawyers yep. back in but, and but he was getting too much friction and it wasn't looking like it was going to work. Well, that's
1: the thing. So, so what's interesting is he, for a while last week, it looked like he was going to... Actually, take the plunge, sign writs of attachment, yes. and then provoke what would have been pretty significant civil litigation um, over whether he had the authority. Again, leaving aside right, right, the right. merits question.
0: Oh, it was going to be a it was going to be a big storm. Whether
1: he even had the authority, right, to compel the civilian lawyers to have to not go to Guantanamo but go to Alexandria participate in these hearings remotely, yada yada right. yada. So that's what he was threatening to do. And something happened between Thursday and Friday. I think
0: he, he's looking at this. He's hearing feedback. Or he's making his own judgment yeah. based on, you know, listening to the podcast. Who knows? Well, look, I, I mean, he did at one point go after Carol Rosenberg, right? I mean, yeah. like, he's he's clearly reading the media coverage. Sure. Right? No, which, which is understandable. Well, he, is uh, he, understandable? He, he, are you surprised? Uh, he has clearly decided, like, look, this doesn't seem like I'm going to be able to force defense a proper defense team to form here. And on the other hand, I don't see this case going forward without it. He, he is beginning to realize it, it. really was going to be a, a, a re- clear, reversible error if it went forward with just this one guy. So he says, "All right, what can I do to force an answer?" So he 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 puts everything in abeyance. Now, as of t- as of this morning, the prosecution team has issued a notice, purporting or notifying hmm. the court that they are going to attempt to obtain. Interlocutory Review from the Court of Military Commission Review. Ah, that old chestnut. uh, There you go. Check. um, Drink of the abeyance oral order. So that brings us to an interesting question, which is like, what, like sixth or seventh on our layered list?
1: If if only there was someone here who who had spent some time studying the jurisdictional provisions of the Military Commissions Act.
0: No, that would be way too nerdy. That's way into the weeds. You you did? (laughs) All right. So let's talk about... 10 US Code, Section 950D.
1: 950D, titled Interlocutory Appeals by the United States. Aha! Aha. So, when can you do it, Steve? So, there are four situations. Um, trial court order. So first of all, the general rule is no interlocutory appeal. Okay. Um, there are four exceptions. One, trial court orders that terminate proceedings of the military commission with respect to a charge or specification. We'll come back to that. We will. Because I think that's it's the only it's the only like, one thread. Yeah. Okay. Um, two, that excludes evidence that is substantial proof of a fact material in the proceeding. No. Nope. Three, that relates to a matter under subsection C or D of 949D. That's about judges acting yeah. like unlawful influence, et cetera. Yeah. Um, D or four, with respect to classified information. Yeah.
0: So the only hook for this under the statute is- The termination. You'd you have to say that what the abeyance order is, is actually terminated.
1: It's constructively terminated right. in the proceeding.
0: So question, uh, I, I'm not sure we agree on this. Uh, I don't think that's a crazy argument.
1: I think that's a crazy argument. There you go. All right, <laughs> let's.
0: It is on. So
1: termination is not a subtle word, right? Like termination is a word that I'll means right, conclusive ending, um, you know, right? The whole point of termination, and at yeah. that point, the whole point is it's not even interlocutory, like that's you, right. The proceedings are done. There's nothing else. Right. right?
0: I, I completely agree that, that if if read, you know, and given a plain reading, no question. Ah, the plain text. Yeah, and you know, the court had something to say, you know. About interpretation, Text. yes. So, so clearly, uh, you know, if we're going to apply it in just our sort of plain reading fashion, yeah, th- this isn't right. And we'll talk. We'll talk in a moment about how that doesn't mean there's nothing they can do. Indeed, this is more of a Marbury. I love your <laughs> more of a Marbury <laughs> situation. Like we're not saying you don't have a remedy. We're just saying you, it just ain't it. we're not saying you got to go home. You just got to get out of here. Um, Although in Marbury, he actually ended not have a remedy, but details. Right. So it, it, the only argument I would make is, look, it they were. Looking to create opportunities to make sure that if if something's been brought to an end, and here, barring further action, which otherwise might not take place, this is de facto, de facto at an end, right? Yeah. Unless somebody tells him to get back into court. I
1: just think termination is a is such a specific word. Now, so there's
0: no doubt that that's the the better reading is the the plain reading. If they want to t- to try to seize the the issue so right. they can try to get the trains running again, I think they could. It'd be a little bit of a stretch, but well, they but, could say like, "Look, this is a constructive termination, so therefore."
1: Okay, so two problems, right? One, imagine the CMCR says, "Okay, you know, we're with the termination, has to be given a capacious reading, yada yada yada." So that decision is not appealable. <laughs> so then you'd have the then you'd have Nishiri, um seeking a writ of mandamus from the DC Circuit to the CMCR. Where have I heard this story? This would be like mm. In Al nashiri Four, yeah, right. I
0: mean, like this well, is. And speaking of just seeking a writ of mandamus, is there a better way than trying to squeeze through my sort of, you know, Yes, yes, yes. Or, yes. So, so
1: normally when a district court abuses authority in a, in a way that the government thinks is fundamentally thwarting the character of the trial, right. the appropriate remedy is what's called supervisory mandamus. Um, and the appropriate court to ask to seek that relief in the first instance is the CMCR. Um, is the CMCR in corate?
0: Ooh, this is getting tied up with other issues.
1: So here's the problem, right? As of right now, I believe there are four judges assigned to the CMC or there are four judges appointed to the CMCR. Uh, there's Judge Silliman, who's a civilian. There's Judge Pollard, civilian. There's Judge Pohl, there's Judge Spath, who are both military officers. Um, Interesting question. Is, is there a pending challenge in the Supreme Court and, oh, I don't know, the D.C. Circuit to whether military officers can serve on the CMCR? But
0: until you win...
1: Yes, the law of the CMCR at the moment is that it's perfectly permissible. So they they will not think themselves in court, right?
0: but... If you win, is it retroactive to undo the validity of what they did before? I doubt it,
1: right? No, because actually if we win, the CMCR is fine. If we win, right, all these judges... Oh, right, they, fine. They're fi- the,
0: the officers aren't fine. But
1: the judges are, right? So the officers yeah. become civilians but their CMCR seven Yeah it's all validated. All, all this is to say that this is all basically we are we are building a Jenga Tower on a pile of sand. <laughs> right? Because I mean the real ooh, that's episode title. Jenga Tower on a pile of sand. Is this um, a Jenga tower? Well, because the problem is the government <laughs> the government has no obvious mechanism for appellate relief, right? They need an extraordinary writ from a court that may not currently have a quorum, right? Um, and, right? That extro- Here's the other problem, Bobby. Let's assume we jump over all of these obstacles. What exactly is that Rick going to say? Like, right? Go back in and hold proceedings? I mean, so Spat. Go back to work? Spat has apparently ruled that there is no violation of attorney client privilege. Right. Right. That is the underlying. Right. The, the lawyers disagree, okay. right, and have withdrawn over ethical conflicts.
0: Like, yeah. until and unless. But th- they're not pursuing that up the Well, chain, that's the thing. And so, and, and
1: so, until and unless that issue is resolved, like yeah, this doesn't go away. This problem, you know, okay. even El Mandamus isn't going to solve that. So the real problem is someone needs to like sit down and figure out how do we get the substantive issue resolved. I wonder if that's part of what Harvey was doing well, when he got right. fired. Right,
0: so that's where it's so ridiculous. We don't have a convenient authority right now. Indeed. Well, um, we have an
1: acting convenient authority.
0: Right, but that's true. We do have an acting convenient. All right. Authority.
1: So so what's next? I mean, what's next? I think is going to be right the question of like you know is the CMCR going to be able to hear this appeal? Are they going to issue, like the next steps now are going yeah. to be in the CMCR.
0: And so they will, but you know, I think it's more likely than not that they'll adopt your reading of termination and say like, look, the, the, there's a, there's a process here, but this ain't it. Well, and, what, unless, what is your yeah. bottom line on if, if it gets refiled as a supervisory mandamus application? So I, the, the question is what the government, I don't think you can
1: decide the abatement issue independent of the learned counsel issue. And well, so
0: th- I would love for them to actually get one of these vehicles going towards the merits. So the right,
1: right so I think the right the right thing to do is to say we are treating you know we are we don't have authority to hear this as a direct appeal. We're treating your appeal as a petition for a demand miss.
0: And we will hear on the following issues su aspons. And
1: in order to resolve the propriety of Judge Bath's abatement order, we yeah. will determine whether in fact the learned counsel properly resigned right. from this case.
0: Now, will all this then be appealable up to the DC circuit?
1: Um, so, no. Especially,
0: even if they bring in the merits issue.
1: Even, no. Because it's all still Supervisor Because it's all mandamus. still Supervisor Mandamus, but it will be subject to Mandamus review by the D.C. Circuit.
0: How hard is it to get that?
1: Ah, we've talked about that before too. So the D.C. Circuit standard for supervisory mandamus, as we've talked about, is ridiculously high, and basically it's impossible to obtain relief um, if it's a matter of first impression.
0: But if it's a, if it's a ridiculousness standard, yes. I think we've
1: got the case. Oh, I mean, if it's a ridiculousness standard, we've been there for six months.
0: Yeah. Um, so, uh, here, ready for some batting practice? Let's do it. Soft pitch down the middle. Would any of this be an issue in an Article Three? Prosecution. Okay, everybody, stand by. I
1: hope you're sitting down. No. Mm-hmm. Or, okay. or as Maddie would say, <gasps> no. <laughs> okay.
0: Uh, we'll get back to Article 3 in a second. Uh, why isn't this huge mess spilling over and affecting the 9-11 trial? Or yeah. is it about to? Um,
1: it's un- so so he, as near as I can tell, the real sort of attorney-client um, breach that set everything off in this case. Um, Al Nashiri meets with his lawyers in a different facility. Than I believe the other commission defendants meet with their lawyers, and so I think the concern was facility specific.
0: <laughs> can they just can they just not take the I'm well? Sure that's what Harvey. I mean, that's what Harvey. Go over to the other. facility? I mean, that's what
1: that's what. Har- so Harvey, right? Yeah. In his, in, in his um, memo on the Baker contempt citation, yeah, just start using the other building, or or build a new facility that satisfies everybody. Yeah, right, right, right. Right. I mean, like this, this is such a just cluster f of self inflicted wounds here. And you know, it's funny. The government is trying to blame us on the defense counsel. Stop! Like you have so the government has so many ways to make this problem, Bobby, either go away or at least be more transparent. Well, it feels
0: like a little bit like a game of chicken that's gone off the rails. Um, so.
1: But but the government could. I mean, so for so one of the things Spath got frustrated with last week was that the government wasn't even declassifying his ruling on why it was not actually un, uh, impermissible interference with the attorney-client relationship, which of course is at the bottom of this whole mess. Yeah. No, so, this you know, is,
0: this is really unbelievable that we're still talking about this and it's spiraling. I mean, the train complexity. has run
1: completely off the rails. So, with that in mind, it seems like a good time to talk about bringing new cases to Guantanamo, right?
0: Well, before we talk about that, yeah. Th- so, <laughs> th- there is this question that's kind of come up again because there's talk of the two uh, formerly British citizen, citizen detainees we talked about last week, uh, Islamic State, really serious. Uh, cases, these these two have been, uh, I think, videoed and clearly involved in some of the most horrific uh, Islamic State activities. They need to not simply be held for the duration of hostilities somewhere. They need to face punishment, serious punishment for their crimes. And, you know, one possibility is the Brits will take him back. This is all bound up in a larger issue around, involving a large number of foreign fighters held by Syrian democratic forces in their potentially dwindling territorial er areas of control in Syria, there need to be long-term disposition plans that don't involve assuming that the SDF is just still there running prisons 20 years from now. So these guys need to be taken somewhere and prosecuted um, I have argued, I'm on record saying that these particular ones there are enough American equities, American blood in their hands are associated with them, that they ought to be brought here. And if, you, if you're at all serious about actually securing serious long-term criminal pr- punishment for them, it's a no-brainer that you bring them into an Article Three court. Um, th- I'm curious what you think, Steve. There was a suggestion by, uh, I think, a British cabinet member that where they ought to go is not the United States, but rather, or not the UK either, but to an international tribunal. Um, so so I, a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, first of all, I don't actually know. I've not looked whether you could come up with an, an international criminal court hook based on Syria. Maybe I don't know if Syria's party or not. Um, but the idea that you're going to get serious criminal punishment uh, in anything like, uh, you know, a speedy nature. I, while I'm super unimpressed with our military commissions, I'm also pretty unimpressed with the suggestion that we should go the international tribunal route Again, at least from the American perspective, if we want these guys to face justice in a serious way and sometime, you know, in the next few years, it's a no-brainer. And to to underscore my point, I want to just list a few recent developments from uh, the Article 3 criminal, civilian criminal process involving terrorism cases. This is just the past few weeks. Um, So first, a life sentence following a March 2017 trial conviction for Ibrahim Haroun, Harun is an Al-Qaeda member who was involved in attacks on U.S. service members in Afghanistan in 2003, involved in plots to bomb a U.S. embassy. He'll never be free again. He was caught by Libyans. He was turned over to the Italians, and then he was extradited to us. And in pretty short order, life sentence. He'll never be free again. Settled long-term disposition. Um, Second. A 22-year sentence for Abdulrahim Mohammed from Ohio who traveled to Syria to try to train with and did train with and fight with Al-Qaeda's al-Nusra front uh, there. Uh, he came back. He's pled guilty. He's admitted uh, all sorts of uh, deeply problematic things. He's got a 22-year sentence. actually would like to see a longer sentence there, but he's got a long sentence. And again, it wasn't hard to secure that uh, three 18-year sentence for uh, Munther Saleh, who last year pled guilty to his role in an Islamic state plot to carry out attacks in New York City. 18 years for him just recently. Um, Casey Spain, case number four. Casey Spain got a 10-year sentence. This is a guy, interesting case, been in prison many times. Uh, Most recently while in prison, became radicalized, uh, attached to the Islamic state in his mind, got an Islamic state flag tattooed on his back. Upon release, FBI was watching him extremely closely, saw uh, reason to believe he was beginning to think about taking some action and ended up busting him uh, in basically a sting for being a felon in possession of a firearm. He's going back to jail for 10 years. Uh, we can go on and on. There's more. Uh, Naif Al- uh, Al-Falaj, a Saudi living in Oklahoma – Turns out he he had lied on his immigration forms about the fact that he had attended the notorious Al Farouk training camp Al Qaeda ran in Afghanistan back in 2000. Um, note that this guy uh, attempted to enroll in a flight school in 2016. Well, charges are pending against him. He's he's been indicted. Uh, there there will no doubt be a conviction in that case. Uh, number six, Mohammed Naji, guilty plea for attempting to join the Islamic State in Yemen. Uh, I'll stop there, Steve. That's just from the past few weeks. Yeah, no, There's no, a I level mean, of productivity right there in the last few weeks right. that's beyond anything that if you add up all the, the military commission stuff over all this decade and a half. It's really incredible. In two weeks. Yep. So, so, what, uh, so, so
1: what you're saying is it's really a close call as between the Article Three courts and the military commissions. Like, you
0: know, and I'm, I'm, I want to be clear about something because – I, I shouldn't assume listeners know sort of my priors about this. I think that military commissions, in principle, are a very legitimate form of justice and the direction they've evolved procedurally, make them procedurally defensible and, and so forth. There, there's still plenty of things to quibble about um, on the paper version. Yet, yet, the, the, the evidence of a decade and a half of, of futility and frustration is more than enough, has been more than enough for a very long time to show that this isn't, in the 21st century, this isn't an effective counterterrorism tool, and we shouldn't use it except when there's no other choice. And we have other choices here.
1: I mean, we have lots of other choices. Lots and and the, so you and I disagree rather strenuously about just how legally viable the commissions are. But if nothing else is clear, it's that at the moment they are not an efficient vehicle for anything other than employing lawyers
0: well well apparently with the defense team in the sherry not even that indeed all right so let's do a very quick recap of what's been developing in the detention cases and good listeners just remember always separate in your mind military commissions, which is prosecution through a military tribunal, and military detention. And when Steve and I are saying military detention, we mean, you know, law of armed conflict-based detention for the duration of hostilities or something like that, where the whole point is we're not prosecuting you. So we've got, as Steve said earlier, two military detention cases we're watching closely. The American citizen detainee, John Doe, who's the uh, litigant in Doe v. Mattis. And then you've got this sort of group of, ele- group of 11 uh, mm-hmm. or the gang of 11, if you will. <laughs> I'm super not going to call it uh, the mass habeas case because 11 is not mass. <sighs> um, but anyways, there are those two cases. Doe v. Mattis, some some real quick overviews there. So when last we reported, we had possession. Uh, obviously, we've had the, the habeas filing for a long time. And last week when we recorded, we had the uh, – the petitioner's response to the government's return, but we didn't have the government's return itself. Since we recorded uh, the public version of that has dropped. It's a it's a big document. It has a a long um, set of factual allegations that are supported by an underlying FBI agent's declaration. So it's uh, in, in some documents that go with that. And then there's also the legal argument. So it's 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 the factual case and, and some amount of evidence for it, and and it enables us to see that, uh, first of all, the fact pattern's more interesting than I would have guessed, right? So I think one useful thing I can do here is just sort of summarize what's the incipient fact dispute. But let me preface that by saying um, the petitioner in his filing in response to the to the factual return has said, uh, court let's set the factual dispute to the side. We do dispute the facts, but let's set it to the side. Let's try to get a ruling only on the law first. So they're not really going to join the issue on the factual evidence at least until Judge Chutkin says she's ready to do that. Which,
1: which I mean, I think it's the right, I mean, you do the law first and the facts second. Sure, right? why not? No,
0: because if it turns out that the government doesn't have authority to detain then him. Then the facts are irrelevant. Right. If it turns out they do, then the court can determine then, are we going to need an evidentiary hearing? something like the a credibility already... finding. Exactly. So why would they need a credibility finding? Well, here's what seems to be going on. Um, John Doe, it, if I read the, uh, the declaration and the, the government's filing correctly, it looks like John Doe was uh, born of Saudi parents in the United States and may have been here up until about age 10 before going back to Saudi Arabia. It looks a lot like, it's hard to read with all the redactions, but it looks like he came back here at some point for college, uh, possibly somewhere in Louisiana, and then has gone back and has lived his adult life in, uh, in Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, um, is married, has, has a, a child, has come back to the United States uh, on a couple of occasions. Uh, apparently, in maybe in some kind of effort to uh, secure proof of citizenship for his for his child, but in any event, uh, does end up in 2014 going to Syria, and it's undisputed it seems that once in Syria, he he. And I'm not going to characterize it first. He ends up doing, all, performing all sorts of roles, uh, some in the nature of guarding, some in the nature of, of you know, more military things, and some more administrative things for the Islamic State governmental enterprise. Uh, before, And, and it, it also seems undisputed that at some point he may have ended up in an Islamic State detention facility for having fled or gone AWOL from one of these positions. Eventually, as the area he was in began to become um, the front for a looming SDF invasion or incursion, um, he ends up trying to sneak through an SDF uh, checkpoint and gets busted and pretty quickly identifies himself as an American or at least a, a dual citizen with U.S. citizenship, ends up in U.S. custody. Now, here's where it's interesting. The government clearly has loads of evidence about this guy's social media and online activities before he ever went over there. And as he would put it, let me back up, Steve. He's saying that he went over there as a freelance journalist, was super curious, wanted to report on it, and know what's going on, but didn't go to join the Islamic State, let alone fight for them. But once he got there, they coerced him. They made him do this stuff. And he was trying to get away, but he couldn't do it. And, you know, it's sort of a foolish, sad sack kind of, you know, uh, what a bad decision I made kind of story. Um, The government responds, and I think this is just damning. Uh, The government response says, well, let's look at what you did on Twitter and elsewhere for the year or so before you ever went over there. And it's one pro-Islamic state, I mean, I mean really pro-Islamic state tweet and message, sometimes going directly to the Islamic State media outfit after another. The only way I can see this not being a factual win for the government is if he can make a credible, in the eyes of Judge Chutkin, credible showing that, oh, all that stuff was part of like a a master plan so that when I got there, I I would be treated well. And you know, anything's possible. Maybe he can do that credibly. Can Can I ask a threshold question? Yeah. Is it clear to you what the burden is? Right. So I think we disagree on this. I think it's so the, the beginning point in the discussion is it's clear that for a non-citizen, yes. it's, it's clearly the case that preponderance is the standard. Because
1: the DC circuit has said it about 26 times.
0: Yeah, it's, it's all over the habeas litigation, preponderance, preponderance, and, and, preponderance.
1: and for And for our non-lawyer listeners, which, you know, if you've made it 58 minutes into this week's episode, wow, right. kudos to you. Because you're JD. Um, <laughs> preponderance is basically more likely than not, or 51%. Yeah,
0: that's the idea. So there's a calibration that runs from beyond a reasonable doubt, the maximum standard, which we use in criminal trials – This is not a criminal trial. There's clear and convincing evidence, which has these sort of like this sort of two-thirds kind of kind of seventy-five percent. But you got to you got to you know don't don't fall for the numbers here. This isn't a numerical thing. These are it's it's a sense. Uh, Preponderance is the midpoint, and then there's some things like some evidence standards, which by the way you know some some have argued ought to be the standard here. The Obama administration, including some DC circuit judges, indeed, right, who got
1: very mad with the Obama administration right. for not arguing that that was the appropriate there in the Guantanamo. So cases. it's
0: not going to fall below preponderance. It's not going to fall below that for a U.S. person, and we haven't seen any indication in the government's filing. The government's filing accepts preponderance as a standard. The Trump administration's not in there. So oh, yeah, lower it. I know you feel it should go up, though. So make your case, counselor.
1: Well. I, I think it's at least an open question, right? So Hamdi said some evidence was insufficient. Hamdi did not say preponderance is sufficient. Um, so a U.S. citizen, unlike a non-citizen, has full due process rights, right? And therefore, I would think full due process means he's entitled to whatever hearing, right, we think is necessary to establish the requisite quantum of guilt,
0: Hamdi right. makes clear that he's entitled to put forward his own evidence. Yep. He's entitled to rebut, to yep. confront the case against him. But the
1: question is exactly what is the judge, right? How is the judge supposed to weigh the evidence? That's what Hamdi doesn't
0: resolve. And I, I, I think you, it has to be true because Hamdi is the only case that's relevant and it didn't resolve it. Um, that We can't say for a fact that the rule for a citizen would be the same as for a non-citizen.
1: Okay. And so, so if that's true, then that opens the door to the rule for a citizen being more
0: protective. Right, which would be clear. Yeah, because it wouldn't be lower. Right. It's either the same or higher.
1: And there are other contexts, other civil commitment contexts, where the burden on the government is to establish their substantive case for civilly committing a citizen, or even a non-citizen, but that's, you know, right, mm-hmm. um, through clear and convincing evidence. And so I don't know that it's obvious that even in a law of war context, where a citizen is involved— The same due process concerns that justify a clear and convincing standard for, say, um, sex offenders, right, for, say, those who are mentally ill and and pose a threat to themselves, for those who are being held, for example, without bail, wouldn't also apply in the context of military detention.
0: Let me ask you this, though. So Guantanamo, I assume you believe and would agree that the non-citizen detainees at Gitmo, they've got due process rights.
1: Uh, I I believe that they have at least limited due process rights. The government is now arguing um, in their response to the 11 detainee petition that in fact they do not.
0: But okay, but the, the, here's the thing. If if they do have due process rights by virtue of the the idea that Guantanamo is not tantamount to having broken They certainly in the don't United have States, the
1: same due process rights as citizens.
0: Well, that's the question. Like why why would they have why would they have worse would they have worse due process rights? I mean, isn't the due process clause it's either applicable to you or you're not.
1: No, but it's flexible. I mean, the process that's due varies based on the circumstances. All right,
0: all right. So I can't pin you down on that. Nope. So I'll simply fall back (laughs) on this. I I think it's like totally inconceivable that the end result of any litigation in John Doe is that the Supreme Court of the D.C. Circuit opts for more than a preponderance.
1: So all I'll say is that may be right, but if you actually mine the D.C. Circuit's Guantanamo jurisprudence, there are so many examples of both majorities and judges in concurring opinions saying, but this is only true because these are non-citizens. Yeah. And so 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 I don't think it's it's remotely obvious.
0: And then, I'll, and then I'll fall back even further on this. I think he's still toast. Well, right. no, unless, no. unless he actually proves to be very persuasive. And there's I'm, I'm glossing over a lot of other contexts, such as commentary right. from his his former Louisiana roommate who apparently spoke to the government. So, oh, yeah, this guy's a, this guy's a mess. He's not a, he's not a journalist. He's very impressionable. He's just the kind of guy that yeah. you're going to radicalize. So I think the government is going to... I think he is what the government sh- says he is. Prob- and, and so listen, probably they're going to win on that.
1: Probably you're right. And so it could be that if we get there, Judge Chuckin says, I'll assume without deciding the clear yeah. and
0: convincing evidence is the right standard. Because it, it's still – And yeah. it's, the government still has that. Yeah.
1: But of course, you know, as, as our listeners will likely recall, my biggest hang-up here, although not yours, right, is the Non-Detention Act. And so I don't know that we right. ever get there. Right.
0: So th- this is why that's the punchline of all this. The real action here is in the possibility that – whatever may be true for um, non-citizens associated with the Islamic State, that maybe the Non-Detention Act applies with special forces to him in a way that the AUMF doesn't reach him. And we've, we've talked about this we've before. We've beaten that to yeah. the ground. So, and we'll come back to it again on Indeed. another occasion.
1: All right, so we, really quickly, we've mentioned the government's response to the Group 11 petition. I think we'll bracket it and, yep. and table come it back for... To that. Um, it's, the, I'll just say this. The government's response is in some ways more aggressive than I thought was necessary And opens itself up to, I think, some counter-arguments that the government doesn't need to win.
0: I think that we're seeing not just here, but over time, in lots of cases and contexts, something that a lot of litigators would say, yeah, that's kind of how litigators are. A lot of it's almost like negotiations, right? Like out pretty the pretty strong right, position opposition to take programs, down, lest lest your decision maker think, "Well, I can't just do everything they said. I got to pull back from there."
1: Yeah, it's just it's an interesting contrast with the. I mean, the Obama administration did not always do that. So, for example, yeah, I don't true. believe there was ever a brief filed by the by the Obama administration that claimed either that Guantanamo detainees categorically lacked due process rights or that the president has inherent detention authority under Article 2. No, that's right. We've now seen both of those from the Trump administration.
0: That's right. And I don't think either. I don't think these are going anywhere, but we'll talk about that on another occasion. Okay.
1: Um, finally, Lighting last around. but not least, well, I guess we'll have to lighten around. And there's also breaking news. Um, oh, there
0: is? I love it when we get breaking news. Well, the breaking the news is Late not that me. interesting. So oh. the
1: breaking news is Judge Brinkema in the Eastern District of Virginia has ruled today um, that – uh, she's basically, let me back up. There is a long-running civil lawsuit brought by victims of torture at Abu Ghraib against Khaki International, or whatever their name is now. Yeah, CACI. Yeah. Um, right, basically for the um, involvement, direct and otherwise, of some of the private military contractors' employees. Um, I just did the French. So the, was like, uh, <laughs> what, <are> you, employees? <laughs> um, anyway, um, um, in the torture at Abu Ghraib. Um, this case has been going on forever. It's been up and down in the Fourth Circuit, I think three or four times already on threshold issues. After the last Fourth Circuit ruling, Judge Lee threw his hands up and recused himself, and so the case got so transferred the to Judge Brinkema. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, yes, um, <laughs> he pulled the spath. Indeed. Um, so the the Judge Brinkema has ruled today and has granted in part, but more importantly, denied in part, and indeed in substantial part, the contractor's motion to dismiss. Um, and included, in her opinion, a series of conclusions that, yes, in fact, these plaintiffs were... Yeah, if the allegations of the complaint are true, this conduct rises to the level of torture, rises to the level of CIDT, it's actionable under the alien tort statute. Um, Some pretty big holdings um, that are actually a pretty powerful step forward in this long-running litigation.
0: okay, so that case is going to have to be discussed in more length.
1: And, right, thanks to the Fourth Circuit's First, well, the en banc Fourth Circuit's 2012 ruling in one of the appeals in this case, that decision is not immediately appealable because it's not a collateral order.
0: Oh, interesting. So the, the question then becomes like, is it better just to, will the, will the defense just settle this sucker? This As
1: opposed part? to going through a discovery and going to summary judgment and uh-huh. all that good stuff. Yeah, yeah, so anyway, right. interesting news. All right. Um, we have, we've gotten, gosh, an hour and five minutes in and we haven't talked about the Russia story. Why don't we do a lightning round on Russia and leave it <laughs> at that? Okay. And then we'll talk about the DOJ Cyber Task Force. It's not that interesting. I tweeted about it. Go, it. Go read Bobby on Twitter. Yeah. Um, so lightning round. Bobby, Friday, 13 indictments. Go. Uh,
0: Internet Research Agency. Uh, Russian interference in the elections. What? There's a lot we could say, but what is interesting that wouldn't be heard on a million other podcasts?
1: So I find a couple of things especially interesting. So the first is... Um, There's a remarkably sophisticated um, investigation—the fingerprints of the investigation here are really fantastically intricate, Um, and the amount of sort of work that Mueller's team did and the sophistication of the counterintelligence investigation is really quite striking, and wholly apart from the politics of the moment is a remarkable teaching moment for just how good— Right, some of our investigators and prosecutors are putting in Perhaps too good a
0: teaching moment. You know, Jack Goldsmith says, you know, we're kinda <laughs> making it clear to the Russians exactly what sorts of things are easy for us to then document. Um, what what struck me as kind of interesting is something that of course the White House seized upon, which is aha, see it it said no witting involvement by any Trump campaign. That, no, members.
1: no it did not. Oh, it didn't? What no. did it say? It said, no, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. Well, See, n- you are doing exactly what the White House wants you to do. The indictment does not say there was no winning involvement by Trump campaign members. The indictment only says that in the case indicted, Well, yeah, that's what,
0: a- I, that's what we're talking about. Those
1: are not the same
0: thing. Yeah, it no, is you're, not you're, the same thing. You're being too picky and trying to make me sound like I'm talking points for the, for the no, Trump No, I'm Trump not blaming Trump. you. I'm, I'm saying so you're talking, falling the Trump. No, no, you're, you're, being, you're being too alarmed about this. I was talking exactly... Exactly about what you just said—that this indictment alleges in this activity no winning involvement by the Trump campaign.
1: I w- so I, I guess I'm being a grammatical pain in the butt. I well, you're say- making
0: it sound like I, you're making it sound like I was saying something way more sweeping than I was.
1: But I would I think I think the grammar of your sentence
0: m- conveys an incorrect impression about the. Well, let's, let's be clear. There is a statement that says. That there is, was as un- to that, right. the internet research agency activities that are there are Americans the who were involved. There is no claim here that any of the Trump camp- peop- campaign people were witting of this. So right,
1: there is no claim here. That's the yes. word that was missing. Yeah, no, I,
0: th- I thought that was obvious. Um, certainly the, the the point of raising this and the reason I said this is the most important point yes. is that this is in no way saying that the Mueller investigation isn't going to come down like a ton of bricks for all sorts of other possible involvement, witting
1: or otherwise witting or otherwise
0: of, of the campaign officials I, right.
1: I agree I just my, my listen I know this is not you My I'm just very sensitive to all the people who said see look it says there was no witting involvement by the Trump well I'm campaign. being
0: oversensitive because I don't want to be seen as, as conveying you. the Trump talking right. points and my point was to make your point which yes, is that they aren't saying that they're not gonna have reasons to prosecute, but okay. But let, let's imagine.
1: So, uh, um, the, the second the second big point I want to make is I think Mueller is now unfireable, um, right? Because
0: <laughs> I don't know about
1: that. Not not legally, right? But because right there is so so this is this is the bit to me the biggest picture thing that happened. Right? Okay. Is if you are a sort of principled, right? Um, you know a serious Republican member of Congress. Okay. And, and all I think about the moment is, you know, sort of balancing, right, partisan politics with your own princip- your own deep core principles, right? The indictment to me puts to bed any argument that there was no attempted Russian interference.
0: It certainly should put that argument to bed.
1: Okay. And so then, right, whether or not there is coming further indictments that tie individuals in the Trump campaign more directly to the interference, right? It is now clear, to me at least, and I say this as, as me, Steve Vladek, that the Russians attempted to interfere, it is beyond dispute, and that therefore there is an important question of American policy going forward about how we can and should respond to and defend ourselves against future similar efforts by the Russian government.
0: As a good government case, of course, he it was already... Determined that he should not be fired. Um, I just don't think that this moved the needle politically in terms of what's the realm of the possible, what the pressures are. I don't. I don't see. I don't think the numbers in the aftermath and the polling have suggested that yeah. the the environment for the Republican members, for Paul Ryan in particular, has particularly shifted.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Give it a week or two. But but this is the third thing. So um, finally, most importantly, right? Um, whether or not the president is complicit, right? Whether or not the Trump campaign is complicit. You know, we should be having a national conversation about how we are going to stop this from happening again. Well, obviously, okay, yeah, all all that the all that the administration wants to talk about is whose fault it was.
0: I, I couldn't agree more. This is this is this is craziness. We all understand we're all living through the the focus on what's the impact of this investigation on perceptions of legitimacy, and that's all the White House seems to care about. Whereas what we need to be focused on is protecting against foreign interference. I mean, there's With an election
1: our, there's an election coming up in eight and a half months.
0: Yeah. No, it's it's a it's a complete fiasco. But but getting back to things that are particularly legal or insightful from a national <laughs> security perspective on this, um, you no know, actual knowledge. The chart, the charges are uh, you know about what you would expect. You know, f- various forms of fraud, federal fraud offenses. Um, you know, they're not going to likely get custody over most if or any of the people indicted. But you never know in the somewhat related context of of uh, cyber crime charges. Periodically, we'll have indictments against uh, significant Russian hackers, and they'll show up in, you know, this vacation spot abroad or that vacation spot abroad. And and sometimes we do nab them and they do end up in the United States. So, so there is that hanging over them. Um, it's... To me, the more interesting question is, what does this tell us about how far along from beginning to end the investigation is? Of course, some people said, aha, see, look, that's that's the conclusion. I don't know about you. I don't see anything in the uh, Internet Research Agency stuff to suggest that they've gotten to the end of their rope. No. I mean,
1: I, so I don't see anything that clearly says they haven't, right? But But it's easy to see how this could – I mean, the thing is – Everyone wants to read too much into the story, right? Right. Everyone's taking away the wrong lesson, which is either Mueller's done, right, or the big shoe's about to drop,
0: right, or that that was the
1: big shoe. And my response is, listen, you know, we can talk about multiple shoes at once. That was a big shoe. Are there more shoes?
0: Who knows? Yeah. But and, that, they may not know. But that shoe is a pretty big freaking shoe. Well, it was a really big shoe to prove something that everyone who's reasonably persuadable should already have fully accepted, which is what everyone thinks was going on. There's no question that they ran this giant bot farm operation at a minimum to try to divide us against ourselves right. and, and in doing so to you know, set us a little bit politically on fire. And the
1: more that people accept the narrative, that, the more that people buy into the narrative that know that's not what actually happened, the more that they're allowing the Russians to succeed.
0: Sure. No, and the, but I think, that the, I think that those teams have already sorted well and I, and I yes. don't think this resorted it much.
1: But the more that those teams remain sorted, the more that folks don't move off of the you know, you're all just being anti Trump, right. right? Um, the more the Russians are winning. Here here's the thing. The Russians are winning.
0: Yeah. That could be the title. Um maybe it should be. We have so many good titles. How do we how do we pick? I don't know. I think we should stop though, because we've gone on a long time.
1: Um yeah, I mean, well, so um, just really quickly on the sort of are they done, right? I mean, so they've got the, what, Alex van der Zwaan. Yes, yes, right? speaking to the Dutch. Um, no, but I mean, the reason why, right, I mean, I, I think – so listen, I don't know if the there. Are, I don't know if the future indictments that are coming are going to be closer to the. Oh, by the way, on if
0: you saw earlier today, they they appear they it appears from the some notes about yeah. the sealed docket. There's some additional charges in Manafort Gates. Oh no, right. So yeah. so
1: so Gates right is apparently turning states evidence. Mm-hmm. Right, and he has tapes. And he has tapes. <laughs> Lordy, let there be tapes. <laughs> or I hope there are tapes. Um, I don't know. The the I I've at least for one buy the sort of theory out there that this is going to put a heck of a lot more pressure on Manafort to plead. Right, and to
0: cooperate. Well, it sounds like they do have some weighty additional charges right. they've probably gotten in there. And,
1: of course, there's a crazy conservative uh, uh, conspiracy theory about Michael Flynn being, you well, know. yeah, we shouldn't even honor that nonsense. <laughs> uh, but, Bobby, the nonsense is what is driving the media cycle.
0: The media can't help. It's the economics of the media industry. You, All right, but we don't cannot have, cover but, this. It's, but we have no economics, therefore. This goes This goes back. Yeah, we don't, so we can stop. But let me just say real quick that going back to when Trump first in 2000. Thirteen, not yes. fourteen. In 2013, <laughs> when he had this, this much-reported meeting with you know power brokers at, at Trump Tower about you know, like, listen, I'm th- I'm going to run for president, and saying I'm going to do this on, on basically the media is going to carry my, carry my message for free, and he understood back in 2013 that by by being outrageous and provocative, and combining that with the media's you know economically predetermined overriding need to constantly have the eyeballs grabbing story, um, well, he was right. He could get them to cover him every day. <sighs> yeah, there we are.
1: That's really I mean, between that and Parkland, you know, I'm just depressed.
0: Yeah, it's a tough time. No question about that.
1: But all the more reasons for folks to stay engaged, to follow Bobby at at Bobby Chesney, to follow me at Steve underscore vlog, to follow the podcast at NSL Podcast. And listen, you're already listening. Great. Spread the word though. Spread the word. Get get some of those get some of the, your conspiracy theory loving friends to listen as well. There you go. All right. Stay safe out there. Adios.